beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you think of worship, uh, what comes to your mind? Uh, Perhaps you think about um, singing songs of praise to God, and certainly that's an important part of worshiping God. Perhaps you think of the church services we have every Sunday, like we're having now. And again, that's an extremely important part of our worship too. Or maybe you think of other things, just um, giving to the poor or, or praying to God, and those things are included also. But even though we can speak about worship in those specific ways, we can also speak of worship more broadly. Worship of God is not something we only do one day a week or at limited times when we're singing praises to God. Uh, No, the Bible tells us that worship is something that uh, encompasses all of life. All of life. Worship is something we do every day. Worship is a way of life. Uh, for God's people. And this is something we we hope to see from our text this morning uh, from Romans 12. Here in Romans 12, Paul describes our spiritual uh, worship given to God, or we could translate it, our true and appropriate uh, service that we give to God, our worship of God. And as we see from this text, this is something that includes our, our whole lives, Not just something we do one day a week or during specific activities. includes our whole being. It's something we offer to God every day in response to His mercies. And so that brings us to the sermon theme. Offer God true worship in response to His mercies. We'll see this true worship includes, first of all, offering ourselves as sacrifices. Secondly, it involves being transformed by mind renewal, and finally, it involves discerning and doing the will of God. Now, in Romans 1, chapters 1 to 8, the Holy Spirit, through Paul, explains uh, in such great detail the glorious gospel of our salvation. He tells us how God's mercy has come to us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Instead of receiving the wrath of God upon our sins, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And instead of being under eternal condemnation like we deserve, now we can confess that nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord and The gospel came to that climax in the end of Romans 8. And then in Romans uh, chapters 9, 10, and 11, the Holy Spirit through Paul explains how this gospel that he's been proclaiming is uh, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. The Jews were privileged to have this gospel for so long, so many centuries. But through their rejection of Christ, God then turned to the Gentiles, and He brought this gospel to them, brought salvation to them. By His sovereign good pleasure, God has had mercy on both the Jews and 
the Gentiles. And as believers, God has had the same mercy on us. And having explained that glorious truth, Paul now moves to his main application from uh, that teaching he's been giving throughout this letter of uh, the book of Romans. He says in Romans 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. In other words, in view of God's great mercy, in view of His compassion, pity, and love, that has saved you. I urge you. I implore you. I call you strongly to respond to God's mercy by offering your body as a sacrifice, a sacrifice to God. And that's a sacrifice. It's a living sacrifice, a holy sacrifice, a sacrifice pleasing to God. And and our text adds, this is your spiritual worship. Now, this phrase can be a little bit difficult to translate the spiritual worship. Footnote in your Bible gives an alternate translation. This is your rational service or your reasonable, well-thought-out worship of God. So, the sense here seems to be this is the appropriate and fitting worship we now give to God for His mercies given to us. It's a worship that involves the heart. It's our spiritual act of worship. It involves our entire life. We offer our bodies as sacrifices. And it's the kind of worship that God desires from His people. For He desires that we worship Him in spirit and in truth. Here we have it, uh, what that looks like in our text. Worshiping God in spirit and in truth. Now, this teaching that Paul is giving here in this text presented such a contrast to what many of uh, these Roman Christians had been used to. Uh, Many of them, some of them were Jews, of course. Many of them came, though, from a pagan background. And when they were enslaved to pagan religions, they offered sacrifices to their idols uh, but their sacrifices that they gave, probably some kind of food or an animal perhaps, you know, were meant to try satisfy their fickle gods, try to manipulate their idols uh, to action. But they never knew if their gods were satisfied or if their sacrifice would move their god to, to act in the way they wanted. And even if they, those gods were satisfied for a time in their minds, they would surely need to be pacified again soon. But then the gospel of Jesus Christ came to them, and they came to know the only God of heaven and earth. And can you believe it? They discovered that this one true God, He made the sacrifice for them the ultimate sacrifice. The one true God even gave His own, uh, His well-beloved Son for them, for us, 
And the idols they had been serving for so long would never dream of doing something like that, something so loving. And this is one of the main differences between Christianity and and every other religion there is. Don't let anyone tell you, and don't let anyone have you believe that Christianity is just like any other religion. In all other religions, you need to pay your way into the idol's good books. But in Christianity, God has done it for us. He's made the ultimate sacrifice, the sacrifice that pays for sins, and that sacrifice was offered once, and it was over. And that sacrifice brings us eternal peace with God as Paul explained earlier in Romans. And so that message would have shocked and delighted uh, these new Christians in Rome who had come from a pagan background. The Lord was so different than the gods they were used to serving. How wonderful to hear about such grace. And yes, now that they became Christians, Paul is saying, you still offer sacrifices to God, But those sacrifices have a different character. Instead of offering sacrifices for your salvation, you are now offering them in response to your salvation in Jesus Christ. Now, in some ways, though, offering the sacrifice described here to God is more difficult than what they were used to. Where it says here, we offer to God a living sacrifice. We don't present a dead body of an animal or something else uh, on the altar, but we offer to God our very lives. And this sacrifice we offer to God, it's not just a religious act, to do once and then you're done, something to get out of the way so that you can just get on again with your own life. No, the sacrifice is your life. And it's a sacrifice to God of ourselves that goes on living and goes on being offered a day after day after day. And it means giving up ourselves completely to God and to His service. That's what it means. It's a living sacrifice. It goes on day after day after day. We offer our lives to God. And the sacrifice we offer to God is a holy sacrifice. It's dedicated completely to God, set apart for Him. And it's a life that keeps in step with who our God is, for He is a holy God, and He is a God who is free from all sin. As 2 Corinthians 7 verse 1 puts it, since we have these promises from God, uh, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So we offer a a holy sacrifice. We make our lives 
holy as God is holy, cleansing ourselves from every defilement of sin. In this regard, the church father, Chrysostom, put it well when he said, how is the body to become a sacrifice? Well, let the eye look on no evil thing, and it has become a sacrifice. Let your tongue speak nothing filthy, and it has become an offering. Let your hand do no lawless deed, and it has become a whole burnt offering. Wonderful words spoken centuries ago. So, holy sacrifice, but the sacrifice we offer is also pleasing to God. It's a life lived according to God's will, and it's a sacrifice offered with the same attitude that Jesus Christ had. See, what did God the Father so repeatedly say about His Son? This is my Son whom I love. With Him I am well pleased. And why was He so pleased with His Son? Because His Son offered Himself freely, willingly. He offered Himself in love. He offered Himself to God. He offered himself completely for others, serving sinners at that. And if we take on that same attitude as Jesus Christ, and indeed our lives, our living sacrifices will be pleasing to God. That brings us to our second point. So here in our text, we can see God urges us to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. This is one way we offer God true and appropriate worship in response to the mercy we've received. But here in point two, we'll look at another way. We'll look at being transformed by mind renewal, by the renewal of our minds. And as we see from verse two, There's a negative aspect to this, and there's a positive aspect, and we need both. There's something for us to avoid, and there's something for us to do. And the negative aspect is this, do not be conformed to this world or to this age. So do not be conformed to the world. And the world here refers, of course, to, to the mass of unbelieving uh, humanity. The world refers to humans united together in rebellion against God. See, there's a common thinking in the mind of fallen humans who do not know Christ. It's a thinking that's controlled by sinful desires, and it's a thinking described already back in Romans chapter 1. There it says about those who do not believe in God, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, 
a covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, boastful, disobedient to parents, etc., etc. Quite a list. Paul is saying, do not be conformed to this world that is characterized like that. And to be conformed to something means to take the shape of something. You know, there's so many examples of things conforming to a shape in day-to-day life. Sometimes this happens very quickly. A potter quickly forms a piece of wet clay on a pottery wheel. A child easily forms Play-Doh in his or her hands, shape it. A concrete quickly fills the basement forms as it's pumped from the truck. Those all happen very quickly. Sometimes one thing conforms to the shape of another over a longer period of time. I was reading this past week, you can actually grow square watermelons. When the watermelon's small, it's placed in a special plastic box, and as the watermelon grows, slowly but surely, it nudges up against the sides of the box, and it starts to take the shape of the box. It's conformed to the shape of that box. Eventually, you end up with a square watermelon. We can say similar things about being conformed to this world. The world is constantly trying to press us into its mold. And because we still have sin in our hearts, it's easy for us to be conformed to the unbelieving world. And this can happen quickly when we indulge the sins the world delights in. And it can also happen over a longer period of time so that maybe we don't even realize it's happening. But through a slow but steady soaking in of the world's message, we begin to think, uh, take on the world's way of thinking. This is why we have that saying, when it's raining in the world, it's dripping in the church. It's the effect of being conformed to the world. So that's why our text implores us, God is imploring us, do not be conformed to this world. Be on guard. Resist the world's sins. Resist the world's way of thinking. Be on guard against a worldly way of life. So that's the negative side of things, but then there's the positive side as well. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed. Notice that it's kind of an odd way of putting it. It's, it's a passive command. That is to say, being transformed, first of all, is something done to us by someone else. It's a passive command, be transformed, because God ultimately is the one who transforms us. God is at work in us to will and to act according to His good pleasure, His good purpose. And that's something we must always acknowledge. 
any positive change in our lives, any growth in holiness, in sanctification, it comes from God. As Christ says in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. And as God does transform us, the change affects our entire nature. We become different people. It's kind of like, think of the process of metamorphosis in nature. You know, a caterpillar, as it's crawling on the ground, it's nothing like a butterfly. It's kind of like a furry tube of jelly with legs. But then it enters the cocoon and undergoes this phenomenal transformation. The entire caterpillar is completely changed. And after many weeks, a beautiful, intricate butterfly emerges from the cocoon. And that's the sort of radical transformation God is working in our lives as Christians. Think of what we read from Ephesians 4. Our old nature with all its sins and evil desires, we put it away. Instead, the new nature created in the likeness of God is put on. We, be, we become conformed instead to the image of Christ. We become new people in Christ. And even though God is the one who ultimately transforms us, notice that our text shows us we are still active in this process of transformation. Verse 2, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. So renew your mind. That is, change the way you think. Renovate your mind. Stop setting your mind on the sinful flesh and its evil desires. Instead, be determined to set your mind on the things of the Spirit. As the Spirit through Paul says in Romans 8, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. And it's the same thing we read in Ephesians 4. I say in testifying the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Instead, Ephesians 4 says, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Changing our minds in this way, setting our minds on the things of the Spirit, will change our lives. It will change how you live every day. Consider it this way. If you have your mind made up that you are going to follow sinful desires, your body will follow your thinking with your deeds. If you keep thinking about sinful desires and how you can indulge them, 
eventually you will start to indulge them by your actions. Your actions will follow what you set your mind on. On the other hand, if you set your mind on the things of God, how God wants you to think and how how He wants you to act, you will begin more and more to act that way in your life. It may be a struggle. It will never be perfect. We will grow in that regard. You know, in this, uh, in this regard, think of a professional athlete. When an athlete has a competition coming up, a sports psychologist encourages athletes to visualize a doing a perf- perfect performance in their minds. So a gymnast will visualize again and again performing a flawless routine. A shooting guard in basketball visualizes uh, sinking the last second three-point shot and not missing. And the diver imagines doing the the perfect platform dive again and again in, in his or her mind. Why do athletes do that? Well, it's because the more they visualize this, the more likely their actual performances will match what they visualized in their mind. When they think about the perfect routine over and over, their brains are literally changed. New neural pathways are formed in line with their thinking. So it helps them to perform in the moment because their bodies follow what they have thought about again and again. And it's similar to us as Christians. By the power of the Spirit, we set our minds on the things of the Spirit. We visualize living for God, denying sin, living according to God's law. We do this by reading God's Word, aiming to align our minds with with what God says there. We do this by meditating on the work of Jesus Christ. We do this by studying the law of God to see how God wants us to live. The more we do that, the more that right actions will follow in our lives, and the more we will offer to God true worship. That brings us to our last point. Now, the renewing of our minds brings about a wonderful result. We can find it right at the end of our text where we read, Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. But through the renewal of our minds, we will grow to become mature Christians. We will no longer be tossed to and fro by every wind of teaching. We will come to discern right from wrong. We will develop a sharpness to discern, okay, what is the will of God in this situation? What is it in that situation? And so on. You know, there are many areas of life where someone needs to spot uh, the good from the bad. They need to practice in order to do that. Think of someone in quality control in a manufacturing plant. He needs to spot defects so that the customer doesn't get a bad product. 
And over time, he gets really good at discerning what is good and what is bad. Think of a jeweler who needs to test the quality of a diamond. You know, with my untrained eyes, I wouldn't be able to tell you when you have a real diamond and when you have only a replica made out of glass. The jeweler has the knowledge, he has the tools, and the experience to tell what's what. Discernment in those areas of life takes study, it it takes practice, it also takes great care. Well, it's the same thing also when it comes to the will of God. This discernment comes from careful study of God's Word. Knowledge, saturate your mind with, with the Bible. If you want to discern the will of God, the Bible needs to shape your sense of, of right and wrong. And to grow in this, we can also study from the great teachers of the church in times past. See, Christ gives gifts of discernment to teachers in his church. We don't just study Scripture all on our own, me and my Bible and no one else and make our own conclusions. How we study God's Word together as the church. We help each other by sharpening each other. And again, Christ gives uh, teachers in the church to help us work through difficult ethical problems. Verse 2 says that by testing we may discern what is the will of God. The sense here is also that we may test what is right, also so that we may come to approve of it. That is, in the sense that we come to enjoy and to love the will of God. It's as if our spiritual taste buds have changed. No longer do we approve of and delight in what is sinful and wicked. We are changed. Our desires change. We approve of what is wholesome and and good and perfect. Perhaps we can find an analogy in the realm of food. When you're a teenager, perhaps a donuts and ice cream sounds like a great supper. It's unhealthy, but it tastes good, so why not? But after eating donuts and ice cream, for supper, you're going to feel sick. And as you grow older, your desires will change. You'll change your diet. You don't want to eat just junk all the time. Now eat what's healthy and good for you. You know what? After time, begin to appreciate that type of food as well. Appreciate it more than the junk that you used to consume. It's that way with the will of God, too. We learn to enjoy uh, what is good by renewing our minds. We delight ourselves in the will of God. We can see that this, yes, the will of God is the right way to live. It's the good way to live. And so we no longer want to indulge those former sins we used to enjoy. Instead, we learn that they're actually terrible. So what Paul says in Romans 6, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now 
ashamed of. You used to delight in them. Now you're ashamed of them. Well, all those things that you are now ashamed of, the end of those things is death. See, a great change has come about in our lives as our mind is renewed according to God's Word. Instead, we see that God's will and God's law is good and wholesome and perfect. And we will do it more and more in our lives. And in that way, we will indeed offer God the true worship that He desires every day. Amen.